No, thank you very much. Um, it's, it's, it, was, it, was, it was repeated many times during the war and many times after um, by historians that the landscape of the battlefields of France and Belgium must have been haunted, that they were haunted. Um, after all, it's the reason there was a long tradition of battlefield hauntings, right from the days of these tales of Marathon in Greece through to the Civil War, British Civil War, which created a whole raft of pamphlets about battles in the sky. We get similar sky battles appearing in Napoleonic Wars. So it stood to reason that one would expect that coming out of the First World War, we would be submerged with stories of ghosts, of hauntings. And yet, we don't. What we do have is a whole series, a mix of traditions of visitations, apparitions, and spirits. But one thing I'll cut back to the end is there are actually relatively few ghosts and ghost stories that come out of the First World War. And we need to think of, of hauntings in a number of different ways as we go through the next 25 minutes. We need to think about who is being haunted. Ghosts, spirits haunt people, but they also haunt places. We also need to think in terms of the impact and influence that different religions had across the combatant countries, from the Church of England to the British forces and the other Protestant faith there, through to the Catholics and also Orthodox. Each of these religious traditions have an influence uh, and have their imprint on the ways in which apparitions were thought to appear, were reported and were interpreted during the First World War and after. And perhaps the most um, iconic um, and well-known of hauntings of the First World War is the notorious Angel of Mons sightings. And I'm not going to talk too much about this. Um, uh, David Clark has written a fantastic book which really deconstructs all these myths and stories. And essentially, the origin of the Angel of Mons story comes from um, a piece of short story which was printed in the press uh, by Arthur Machen, which was called The Bowman. And this is one of the representations at the time of this ghostly force, the Bowman of Agincourt, who came to the rescue of the British Expeditionary Force in August of 1914, as it's being pushed back uh, at the town of Mons. And the interesting about this is that it created a huge amount of interest in the British press. It created a huge amount of interest in the Church of England and its clergy. And it all ties in, obviously, partly with notions of propaganda, the idea that the spirits, the spirit forces, will come to the aid to the sucker of the British to push back the Germans. Um, and so we need to tease apart the degree to which we are talking about rumour, we're talking about deliberate propaganda, we're talking about the ways in which the church appropriates some of these stories. But in essence, the most famous one, the Bowman, is a literary piece of uh, fiction which becomes considered and taken as fact. And we get the multiplications of different other sorts of reports of apparitions at Mons, which involve in clouds, which involves cavalry, uh, which also, as we come on to see in a minute, also involves angels. But the Society for Psychical Research, which did a lot of investigation at the time, during the war, on these sightings, it tracked down um, people who said they'd seen it, all those second-hand reports. And in the end, the Society for Psychical Research was actually more interested in what the Angel of Mons stories had to tell us about psychology and rumour than it did about the reality of apparitions this time. One of those other stories that emerged from the growth of the Angel of Mons stories, obviously originating from Arthur Machen's short story, 
was the idea of angelic hordes being seen by the British forces at Mons and pushing back the Germans. And this is part of a wider tradition of angelic visitations across the combatant countries. But Britain was particularly preoccupied with angels at this time. Um, the, battle, the, the Mons stories are not the only ones. There are other stories from example, um, which I shall quote now from, a Welsh stretcher bearer who reported in January 1916. So remember with all these stories, they get sometimes get reported about two years, three years after the actual supposed sighting. But this is um, J.G. Davies, a Ronda, a stretcher bearer. We were in a trench beside Saint-Jean near Ypres, Belgium, and the shells showered on us. I, as a stretcher bearer, went down to the trench to see if anyone was wounded, but stopped now and again to hear the men praying. So finding nothing to do, I prayed myself, and the trench was one line of prayer. After the shelling, no one was wounded, but we all saw a host of angels and talked about them, and I told them that the Lord was on our side. The same Davies also claimed to have had another vision of an angel while in the trenches. Another time, we heard a voice sounding through the air about nine o'clock at night, and the moon was clear, and I saw an angel flying with a trumpet in his mouth. Some were very frightened, but I said, cheer up, it's all for good to them that love the Lord. And when you start unpicking a number of these stories of angelic visions, uh, the ones at Mons and all those, this one, this, this supposed first-hand evidence of proof from from Davies, the stretcher bearer, no relation, by the way, um, to me, um, you start seeing that there is a strong evangelical impulse. Catholic combatant countries were far less preoccupied with angels than the British were. And this is particularly tied up with a crisis going on in the Church of England at the time, a crisis of faith within the church, which is exacerbated by the war itself. Um, because people because of the mass killings and of the death, the millions being slaughtered, there was more of a call upon the clergy at a parish level to give succor to those that had died as well as those who were living. That was seen to be, by some uh, in, the Catholic, uh, in the Church of England, as a Catholic tendency, the idea of praying for the dead was considered Catholic. So there's a crisis going on between pressure from below for a greater role and a greater say from the Church of England in intervening on behalf of the dead soldiers. And those tendencies, we saw that as a problematic and increasing influence of Catholicism in the Protestant Church of England at this time. And so it becomes something of an obsession. And of course, the tabloid press of the time picks up that they like a good story as well, which is to do with the supernatural, um, particularly the jingoistic press, the, like John Bull, which was um, edited by Horatio Bottomley, who was at exceedingly nasty demagogue, rather similar to some of our current politicians. Um, he, he printed a whole piece which claimed that the Kaiser um, was the Antichrist because he picked up some various uh, literature which, uh, through numerology, had said that the Mark of the Beast 666 um, was identified as the Kaiser. So he's spewing out all this sort of xenophobic, jingoistic rubbish. And people like him are pick up on the Angel of Mon stories as propagandist overt propagandist pieces. So the stories get subverted and used in different ways, by different forces for different reasons. But the Globe, which was a quite popular newspaper at the time, looking in 1917 at the continuing obsession with the Angel of Mons and other supposed sightings by British soldiers, uh, and also by people on the home front, um, said there seemed to be an outbreak of angelitis. It said, how does one catch angelitis? 
And so there are critical voices out there who are seeing what's going on here. Now, as I said, the preoccupation with angels and angelic hordes is very much tied to this, uh, the religious climate in Britain at the time. When you go to look at Catholic countries where angels are an accepted part of theology, there is not so much obsession. It's taken for granted that angels would appear on the battlefield. Um, the whole concept of the guardian angel was uh, orthodox theology, at least in popular Catholicism at this time. And so we do get cards repeated, particularly in Italy and Germany, which represent the idea of one's guardian angel coming down on the battlefield, um, not only to protect, but as in this case, to give the German soldier a good shot against the British. <laughs> so the ways in which guardian angels obviously um, would become part, in a sense, of the combatant forces. You've got the soldiers themselves, the living, and then the whole angelic horde on your side, depending on which side you're on this time. And we don't actually get, we get very few supposed recorded sightings of angels or angelic hordes um, in the Catholic countries, um, Italy, Germany, in the Combatant and France. But we do get lots of um, Marian and saintly visits. So in other words, the theology and the Marian cult within Catholicism, in a sense, meant that you didn't require an angelic horde per se. They are angels, of course, but they're identifiable angels. In other words, they are saints. They are Jesus. They are Mary. And in particular, Marian visions, visions of, the angel, uh, the visions of Mary coming down, um, were quite um, predominantly reported in the early months of the First World War on the battlefield. And again, I'm, I'm focusing on the battlefields here as a landscape, but obviously you get Marianne visions and sightings on the home fronts in Portugal, in Spain, in Italy, in Ireland at the same time. But on the battlefield, we get a, a raft of them from each, each, base, each base, uh, combatant country seems to have its one iconic Marianne vision during the early months of the war. And so the, the Russians in um, October 1914, who are being besieged by uh, the Germans in uh, what is now it was East Prussia, claims that Mary came down and saved them. And this gets reported in the Russian press. It leads to the uh, uh, painting of, a, uh, of an iconic image of uh, Mary coming down at this battle, which goes on to sell in its hundreds of thousands across Russia at this time. Uh, in France, the most famous Marianne uh, apparition occurred very shortly after the reports of the Angel of Mons coming out. This happened in September um, 1914. And it happened on the feast day of the Virgin, which is the 8th of September. And this was a, a very day, on this very day, um, the German forces were pushing right towards Paris, kind of a lightning strike. Paris seemed threatened. And on the 8th of September, so it was reported, a vision of Mary appeared on the battlefield um, facing towards Paris, pushing back the German forces. And this became a great rallying cry. It's printed in, in, in newspapers across the globe. It's seen as a sign as religion of God protecting the righteous allied forces against the Germans at this time. But the interesting thing, when you look at the French reports of this supposed miracle on the Marne, it was known, um, is that it's, it's accepted. There's no debate. It's not in the English context. It's Protestant concepts are trying to deal with these religious issues of reality of angels, about providence, um, about the degree to which um, Catholic influences are creeping into the Church of England. Here, it's, it, it's taken largely as fact that, of course, Mary would come down and protect the French soldiers at this time. But when you look into the story once again, you find that it first actually comes about in 1917, not in 1914. 
um, from a highly dubious source, a letter supposedly written to uh, a Carmelite of Pontoise, the north of Paris. Um, and supposedly this letter was written by a wounded German priest serving in the army who said that, um, yes, he had seen this, but the German military authorities had um, forbade him from mentioning it, but now he was in the care of the French. He let it open and said, yes, I saw it, others saw it, Mary appeared and pushed us back. And stories like that are clearly serve as a valuable, again, propaganda uh, um, sort of piece of thing to promote and report both by government and also by the Catholic Church itself at this time. But the Catholic Church is quite wary and, and cautious about how it describes what they think is an obvious miracle, but it gets described by the clergy as a relative miracle. They don't want to say that Mary has appeared and won the battle for the French. What it was that his, she has come and given courage to the soldiers. Because they don't want to remind military authority. They say, the great generals have served us well here. This is, this is fantastic. Uh, Mary merely gave us the courage and the support. She didn't actually win the battle for us. So the ways in which um, these visions are appropriated again, once again, and interpreted, um, you look for subtle signs of what's going on in this period. And the image I'm showing you here is um, Saint, uh, what, what is now Saint Therese, but in 1914 she was just her followers were just starting on the route for her beatification. Um, Saint Therese was a, a nun who claimed to have seen visions of Mary in Lisieux, in a Carmelite nun in Lisieux. Lisieux becomes the second largest and busiest shrine after Lourdes by the First World War. And so it's not surprising that um, the followers of Saint Therese start collecting um, letters from soldiers who have prayed to her and been saved in battle. And these are all collected, actually collected up in 1919. It's about 200 pages worth of letters from soldiers um, you know, from all over the globe um, of Protestants and Catholics have all said that they've carried one of her medals or badges, the fact that she's appeared on the battlefield to them and saved them uh, at, at, at key moments in, in battles. And the imagery, I think, is quite stark. And the idea there, again, you've got, you've got the, all the ACAC going on, you've got the, the whole scenes of the trenches, and this idea of Saint Therese, this young woman, appearing to them again. And you get people who are actually blessing their guns to Saint Therese at this time. So, Marianne visions. The interesting thing, again, most of the Marianne visions are very early, and they, they fizzle out as though Mary loses interest in the First World War. Um, or probably because she loses the propaganda values, the war grinds on, the certitude that the war is going to be won fairly shortly um, kind of wears away at the idea that Mary, Mary despite her visions in 1914, really hasn't actually influenced the war at all. Um, but you do get continuations of these appearances of other saints at this time. And of course, um, wherever Mary is, there's also Jesus. And uh, these Jesus stories are quite interesting because they get reported, you don't actually get, in, in Italian um, letters home from Italian soldiers, there are a number of reports of people saying that they have seen a vision of Jesus in the sky, either on the Calvary or not, uh, at key moments in battles. You get a whole series of postcards, lucky postcards, um, being produced in Italy for these Jesus visions, and also ex-votos being um, donated to a series of shrines from soldiers who have been saved and say it was due to Jesus intervening on the battlefield. But in a British context, um, what we find is the notion of the white comrade. 
And um, that's not Jesus, by the way. I'll come on to him in a moment. Um, but um, I'll just to give you a line of, of how this was. Again, David Clark has also covered this partly in his book as well. Uh, but this is a this is a this was um, Reverend C. E. Doodney, a vicar of St. Luke's in Bath, telling his congregation in July 1915. He'd just come back from the front himself. He'd been wounded as a chaplain, and he told his he told his um, parishioners it had been said again and again that through the horror there walked a man in white. The men called him the White Comrade, but they knew who he was. And so the idea of the White Comrade stalking, giving succor to the wounded about those about to die on the battlefield, that Jesus, this white figure, walks amongst them. And that you get these reports, particularly promulgated again by the clergy, uh, reported by the newspapers, that hundreds, if not thousands of men, apparently seeing the white comrade or Jesus, visions of him as on the battlefield. Again, you have to strip it away and try and find any first-hand accounts, and they get very thin on the ground at this time. But there are other white comrades on the battle, which leads us further more and more towards um, the ghostly rather than the religious. So there are other white comrades that get reported. This is General Skobolev, a 19th century famous Russian general who on two occasions during the First World War, it is reported, appears to Russian uh, troops leading them on his white charger. He was, he, was, he was iconic for his white horse, his white charger, and wearing a white cloak, which is not wearing here. But this is part of a, quite a long tradition of ghostly generals leading men into battle. Um, so it's, it's not a new thing, but it's, it's a first sign of the ways in which old traditions start getting reformulated in a First World War context and in the landscape of the First World War. And it's not just European. There's a, an account I come across um, of a wounded um, Sikh soldier who says that at the Battle of Gallipoli, his unit was fighting the Battle of Gallipoli, and as they went over, he and his comrades around him saw the white ghostly figure of Guru Govind Singh, a great warrior, Sikh warrior, 19th century warrior. And as they pushed towards, they were given heart and given courage as they pushed towards uh, the, the Turks at Gallipoli and saw them through. So the white comrade shifts and changes, but it's the same concept, but in different cultural context. And also the Serbs have uh, Michael, Skob um, uh, Michael Krylovic, who was a medieval legendary warrior, and again, um, during conflicts just before the war and during the war, Serbian troops, it is reported, are saved by the great legendary Krylovic. So, so far, then, we've been looking at the apparitions on the battlefield. We're not talking about ghosts as the spirits of the dead. So that's what we move on to the second section now, which, which is the assumption that often gets made by historians. There's a, there's a, there's a, most, most of the First World War literature will tell you that um, spiritualism booms during the First World War because of this obviously great concern with wanting to keep contact with loved ones who have been obliterated, there's nothing left, but receive succor from going to mediums and talking to their loved ones on the other side. Um, that's been overplayed and overstated. In fact, spiritualism as a religion does not boom during the First World War. The numbers don't stack up. And also, it's been overly exaggerated the number of people who are going to mediums to talk to loved ones. In fact, most people going to mediums are actually going there for divinatory advice, not to talk to the dead, but that's another, another story. But all I'm saying is that there's a number of problems here whereby historians have conflated a number of different traditions, Marianne visions, um, storytelling, um, legends, ghostly legends, and mix those all up in a bundle which they kind of just label as spiritualism and the spirits. But it, it is good to focus on spiritualism now, because although, as I say, there's, there's, there's 
been over-exaggerated, the popularity of it. The spiritualist community itself actually thought that the spirits, their myriad spirits, were at work again on the battlefield, helping their side, or in a sense for some of them, uh, for those who believed in universal brotherhood, helping all of the wounded across the battlefields at this time. Um, so you get claims from some spiritualists, both in France and Britain, that indeed um, the spirits themselves are guiding the generals, are guiding the warfare itself to a successful conclusion. And I've got a quote um, from uh, a rather um, doddery sort of uh, chap who writes to the Leeds Mercury in, eight, in October 1915. He's clearly a spiritualist. And he says, Sir, all who die in the performance of any duty go to Valhalla, one of the heavens. The third, I believe, though I'm not quite sure. Of one thing I know, they are supremely happy. Their sphere of action is glorified and enlarged, and as spirit forces, they engage in services in different parts of the universe. As a psychic, I distinctly affirm that councils of the spirits are often held to see what can be done in the war. So this was quite a strong trend in spiritualism at the time, that the spirits were working, as I say, actively working and guiding both the military effort and also giving heart to um, soldiers uh, on the ground. Again, sometimes in a nationalistic way, but there was a strong pacifist and uh, belief in universal brotherhood in the spiritualist movement. So you get various debates going on in spiritualist literature at the time saying, well, actually, you know, the spirits on the battlefields don't make any difference between the British and the Germans um, or the French or whatever. They just minister and um, minister to the souls um, that are coming from the battlefield and up. So in a sense, a lot of the work that's supposedly going on is the ministration of the souls as they transfer to the other world after having been blown to bits on the battlefield. And there's a rather sweet, um, again, letter written by a Dublin spiritualist and his wife who hold Sunday evening seances uh, and their spirit guide, they invite their spirit guide um, to invite some of the souls who are doing this work. In other words, all these, 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 these spirits who are taking the recently deceased on the battlefield and transferring their souls over, calming them as they make the transference over. And they have these Sunday dinner parties where they invite some of these spirit ministers to come. And they say, we've received a very nice letter from uh, this uh, Indian officer. We've received a very nice letter from a French officer. So they're having these dialogues with, with spirits who are active on the battlefield, which not sorry, no one's seeing. Again, these aren't, these aren't visions or apparitions. It's a whole theology of the way in which spiritualism conceives of the interaction between spirits and the soldiery on the battlefield. Um, but they also, according to some spiritualists, there are myriad spirits on the battlefields, again, actually um, curing and healing physically as well as spiritually. Um, and there's some talk, the degree to which the spirits of doctors and nurses obviously have uh, the most valued because they both have the physical knowledge of illness and injury and the spiritual knowledge as well. And one of the mediums, Violet Burton, claimed she had a conversation with Father John, who supposedly was a medieval monk, um, who knew Francis of Assisi, but was currently doing ministering work on the battlefields of France. And he talks of um, just having recently helped the spirit of an officer who was just confessing to his chaplain when a bomb dropped and he's just blown to bits. Uh, and he says this, the spirit that was so troubled, the trauma of being blown to bits on the battlefield, the spirit was struggling to go to the other side. And so people like, spirits like Father John were there to administer spiritual ether to enable them to transfer over. So there's a whole, whole world of spiritualism here which is being discussed and explored of action on the battlefields at this time. Okay, and finally, uh, it's gone, doesn't matter. Um, and finally, it's disappeared, it's vanished. Uh, and finally, we come to ghosts. 
ghosts. And again, most people associate haunting and the hauntings of the battlefield with ghosts. And by ghosts, I mean the spirits of the dead, souls of the dead. So far, we haven't been talking about those only in a spiritualist concept, but we talk about in a more traditional, popular context of ghosts. Things get more complex and problematic again, and easy to misinterpret. Yes, there, were, there are some examples of soldiers saying they saw ghosts, i.e. the spirits of the dead on the battlefield, and they normally conform to traditional forms of ghostly appearances, going back centuries. Um, the purposeful ghost that you can record right back to the medieval period, we find again in some of the reports from soldiers on the battlefield. Uh, one of these being what we might call the call, which is where the ghost of a loved one, your mother, your father, appears um, to tell you that your time is up, you, that you are facing death imminently, and they have come down to earth to give you succor in your final moments and to know that you're going to join your deceased relatives now. And there's a rare sweet story of three soldiers, which is reported in 1916 in, in Belgium and Flanders, and they're, they're, the battle is raging, and yet they see on the battlefield um, this little old woman dressed in blue with a bonnet on, and they're puzzling. The, billet, the bullets are whizzing by, but nothing seems to harm her. And they think it must be some mad local Belgian woman. And then one of, them, one of the men looks at her and goes, no, that's my mother. She's come for me. And so you get those sorts of stories coming. Again, they're always secondhand. You get very few of these are first-hand stories. The other type of ghost story um, that you get is a purposeful ghost, is the ghost that appears to lead you out of danger. And this is perhaps the most common of them. This is the idea that... At a moment of crisis, you know, they're forewarned. If, if a bomb is about to land in the crater you're, 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 you're sitting in, and all of a sudden, uh, the spirit of your brother appears, comes to you, picks or takes you by your hand, and leads you away. And then you wake up on another part of the battlefield, and your comrades come and see you, and they say, how did you survive? Um, you, everyone was blown up in that sector. Uh, and that's a repetitive story you get a number. You get it from Australian troops, you get it from British troops, you get it from French troops, you get it from American and Canadian troops. But it's a classic, traditional, purposeful ghost coming back to save or to bring you to the other side. But ghost stories, as I say, are actually relatively few and far between, given the numbers. And, in fact, when you look at the press and when you look at a lot of reporting about the ghosts when you're, and you, when you hear soldiers saying, yes, yes, I've heard lots of men say they've seen ghosts on the battlefield... What, when you dig down, what you actually find is they're not seeing a ghost or claiming to see ghosts. That's just a shorthand. What it is there is visions or wraiths and fetches, or what um, psychical research would call crisis apparitions. They're not the spirits of the dead. They are those myriad traditional ways in which people claim at moments of crisis or death, not after death, but just before a vision of your loved one appears to you to show you, just to give you a sign that your time, uh, their time is up. And you get loads of these reports on the home front. You get them on the battlefield as well. The scientific psychological research is actually much more interested in this than they are in ghosts or any other form. Um, and yet, when it comes down to it, they, they're, they're desperate for examples of these crisis apparitions because it would prove telekinesis, which is what they're really interested in at that time. Um, and the SBR writes repeatedly in its reports that they're disappointed about the number they're getting, four or five only four or five only, until 1917. They're desperate. They're desperate. They thought, and actually say in their minutes, that they thought this was going to be the great moment, the great laboratory, when crisis apparitions would be myriad. They would have large numbers of them to be able to analyze scientifically, and they don't appear. 
And likewise, in France, Charles Richet, great psychical researcher there, put out a call which went around the French military, for example. He got only 100 back. And of those 100, he said only eight were of any interest whatsoever out of the total on there. So just to sum up then, when we look at and talk about haunted battlefields, there are a lot of different traditions, legends going on. There's a lot of make-believe, fakery, gossip, and storytelling, but all of them fascinating in their own right. Thank you. No, no, sorry, it's my fault. I just got okay. put one on. <laughs> uh, thank you, Owen. Um, just so you know, this, this slide isn't the afterlife. It's, um, it's, it's actually, actually the room where we do our sort of weekday gatherings. So it's just around the corner. <laughs>